Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is columnist and former editor at USA Today, Jill Lawrence. Welcome, one and all. I also want to express my thanks to Sunny Bunch for sitting in for me last week. It is good to be back. And this is the week that brought the expected, but until this week, not certain, announcement by President Biden that he is indeed seeking a second term using the slogan debuted at the State of the Union address, let's finish the job. I'm going to start with you, Jill Lawrence, teeing it up this way. The RNC released a response video to the president's announcement depicting the dystopian world that we can expect if Biden is reelected one in which China immediately invades Taiwan, banks shut their doors, the border is overrun, and San Francisco has to declare martial law to cope with out-of-control crime. So what do you make of all of it? And welcome. Well, thank you, Mona. It's good to be back. Uh, As far as the RNC response, so much of what Republicans are saying these days feels like looking in a funhouse mirror. You know, the idea that China would immediately invade Taiwan when Republicans are the party of at least division on Ukraine. You know, it doesn't make sense. And none of the rest of it makes sense either. I think that Biden's announcement, from my perspective, was really good in terms of framing things as more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer rights, because that's another area where it seems to me the Republican Party is framing things upside down, that they are the party of freedom. Now, my husband, who's closer than I am to President Biden's age, said, I don't like the way he's talking. He sounds old. He's so old. And I said, yeah, but what is he saying? Listen to that. And also look at the pictures. I was uh, reminding him about the old Leslie Stahl story where she did a very critical piece about President Reagan and they told her how much they loved it and thanked her profusely. And she said, what's going on? And they said, nobody listens to you yammering, Leslie. They don't care what you say, but there's all these pictures of babies and bunting and optimism and patriotism. And um, he said, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, in Biden's case, there's pictures of, you know, invest in America type things. But there's also the excuse, the expression dystopia that Republicans may create, you know, showing January 6th attack, uh, people demonstrating for abortion rights, all that sort of thing. So all in all, I don't think that the GOP has a terrific argument to make. So one of the things that also was featured in this video announcement, Damon Linker, was Kamala Harris, very prominent in that video. Lots of pictures of the two of them together, lots of pictures of her smiling, obviously very intentional. Well, he really doesn't have a choice. She, as I wrote this week, at the moment, it looks like she's going to be a kind of weight around the campaign's neck. Her numbers are not strong. She doesn't really have a lot of people who are very enthusiastic about her whenever she speaks In public, it seems very awkward and halting and like she's unsure of herself, like triple thinking every word and as a result ends up saying not very much in substance. And all of those things, I think, have have contributed to her very soft numbers. And you ideally don't want the Veep to be, you know, significantly lower in polling than the guy at the top of the ticket, and especially if the guy at the top of the ticket is sort of in the low 40s anyway. So what do they have as a choice? Well, we've talked on the podcast over the last year or so, well, you know, should he, could he, would he dump her? And of course, that's always fun for pundits to mull over, but there's really no modern precedent for such a thing. It would be like the juiciest political story with the headline, Biden camp scrambles in a 
panic, it would probably backfire badly. So they have really no choice but to stick with her. And if they're going to do that, they have no choice but to try to burnish her image and make her look better. I'm a little skeptical that it's going to work, but the only alternative is to just kind of let her continue to flounder. And then you risk that instead of just being a weight around the campaign's neck, she becomes like an actual anchor that could sink it. So it's not likely that the Veep will ever be that decisive for a vote for president, but it certainly wouldn't help if she doesn't improve things a little bit. So I think we're going to see her probably taking on some more higher profile issues, giving higher profile speeches, and trying to be a little less unimpressive. (laughs) (laughs) I wish them luck, given the stakes in our politics for the Democrats prevailing in 2024. So fingers crossed. Bill Galston, I'm becoming slightly skeptical of the major narrative about Kamala Harris being so awful. She's had a number of verbal stumbles. We have talked about it on this podcast and given examples. But uh, something Damon said triggered a thought, which namely that, you know, she is being so careful about how she says every word. And maybe it's gotten inside her head a little bit that she's going to be ridiculed if she puts a foot wrong now. And maybe it is time for a reset. And honestly, you know, she has in the past given competent speeches. We've all seen her perform far better than she has during the vice presidency. So do you think there's something to that, that we're going to see a better Kamala Harris come out of this? Uh, Let me try to frame my response a little bit. Like others, I was struck by the freedom theme at the heart of the Biden announcement video. There is no way that that theme would have been front and center had it not been for the Dobbs decision, which is exhibit A in what the Democrats will charge is the Republicans' anti-freedom agenda. In that context, her credibility as a message for the pro-choice point of view, I think becomes more of an asset than it would be otherwise. If the issue were foreign policy or the economy, I'm not sure that she would speak with much confidence or credibility. But it's clear just watching her talk that she is much more comfortable with that issue and related issues than she is with some of the issues that traditionally frame and lead and decide presidential campaigns. So if she's used correctly, I think she could be an effective and increasingly confident spokesperson on that question and questions like that. And if I were making recommendations to the campaign, which I could in principle, but no one would listen to me. Uh, that That is what I'd suggest. I think that the selection of freedom as the dominant theme, at least of the announcement, whether the campaign can stick with it or not is another question, does represent a bet on the part of the Biden folks that they can center the campaign on that question and make it work well enough for them to overcome deficits in other areas. If so, that would be a really dramatic development. I can't think of a parallel in recent American presidential campaigns. Linda, so speaking of deficits or liabilities that the president has, the job market is very strong, but because of inflation, Americans have not seen any increase in their net worth over the last couple of years. He has low approval ratings, as we've mentioned, but that's not dispositive. On the upside, he has the advantages of incumbency. He has the abortion issue, which has been demonstrated to be very powerful um, since Dobbs. He has the fact that he is normal. And then, of course, there's the fact that the Republicans are looking to uh, nominate Donald Trump again, and they are behaving in ways that are not geared to appeal to the average voter, but just to their 
extreme right-wing base. What's your view? Well, absolutely. I think you've just stated my view, Mona. (laughs) I think for those of us who still consider ourselves conservative on policy issues, I would love to have a conservative candidate that I could support. And if the Republicans came to their senses and nominated a Chris Sununu or Asa Hutchinson or Nikki Haley or, you know, a host of candidates who are sort of either in the race or tentatively putting their toes in the waters, I would gladly vote for one of them. But that doesn't seem to be what is about to happen. And if this election comes down to another Biden versus Trump I think Biden will win. And what is sort of, you know, really disturbing about it all? We're being presented these two dystopian views of America. I mean, you know, yes, you can say good things about the Biden video and the announcement, but, you know, this idea that we're on the brink of going into authoritarian, totalitarian regime where, you know, all of our freedoms are at risk, et cetera. That's the argument. And I grant you that there is some evidence that there are people in the Republican Party who want to take us in that direction. The Republican response was absolutely horrifying to me. And the fact that they used AI to do this, they created these scenes of the invasion of Taiwan, the 85,000 migrants, you know, breaking through the border, storming the United States. It was a real invasion. Mm. Well, if in fact there were such an invasion, that's one of the reasons we have a military. These things are not going to happen and they play on the most racist tropes. It's really sort of disgusting, but it's also scary that they were so quick to jump to using artificial intelligence, which creates images which are not real, but look very real. And to be right out of the box creating these images is scary to me because if that's the way the campaign is going to be run, we are in for a pretty rough ride and a very dangerous ride. Yeah, Jill Lawrence, this is something that we have been warned about and we've been talking about for quite some time, that the day was fast arriving when artificial intelligence would be used to create deep fakes and you could put words in people's mouths, you could have videos showing people saying things they didn't actually say. And of course, since falsehood travels much faster than truth, it could be really disruptive. So these images in this particular video weren't of a politician mouthing words he didn't say, but we may be very close to that. And nothing that we have seen in the last several years tends to suggest that this country and our media ecosystem is in a position to handle this responsibly. Well, I think that's true. And it's very bleak because Democrats are not as good as Republicans at messaging. And I say that, you know, as someone who wishes they were. And some of the best advice I've seen for how to minimize these threats, the ones that you're talking about, have come from former Republicans or even conservatives who now wish Democrats would be fighting harder to stave off some of this. I mean, of course, in my industry, in journalism, there's fear that it's going to eradicate the whole industry. And the first attempt at it by CNET, a news outlet, came up with all kinds of lies and falsehoods and misstatements and misinformation. And they had to withdraw dozens of stories and not even correcting them would have worked. So we are dealing with an entire part of our society, maybe 10, 20, 30 percent that believes this. And I guess not to impinge on the next topic, but my greatest fear is that Tucker Carlson somehow comes back as a candidate, a political candidate, and rocket fuels his whole false narrative of what's happening in America and and reaches even more people that way than he did on Fox. So I don't know what to tell you. I think Congress has not shown very much inclination to rush on this or to get involved in any kind of confrontations with what technology may have in store for us. And I, I wish that they knew more about it. And I wish they were more aggressive in terms of trying to figure out how we keep this under control. 
Okay, well, with that, I think we should just rush right into the <laughs> next topic <laughs> because it is highly relevant. And I think we will be discussing for many, many months to come the emerging race for the presidency. So let's talk now about the earth shattering news this week that Tucker Carlson was defenestrated from Fox News. It will happen very abruptly on Monday morning. Everyone has been kind of agog. And so the first thing to say about it is that Tucker Carlson, in my judgment, was a uniquely malicious and malevolent force in American life. And though it's true that Fox will be able to slot someone else into that time slot, that someone else will probably be terrible. My view is that he was unique because he was highly intelligent and effective, and therefore, this is a good thing for America. Bill Galston, what do you think? I think it's a good thing for America. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's an especially bad thing for House Republicans, because the relationship between Carlson and House Republicans, starting with the leadership, was very, very deep. I don't think it is any accident that when he made his desire known for the January 6th videos, that he was granted unique access to them. And there have been a number of statements by House Republicans since his defenestration was announced that amounted to a lament that they no longer could rely on their views and even their phrases showing up in Tucker Carlson's nightly rants. I don't know what the bottom line is going to be, but anything that decreases the visibility and audibility of the most extreme voices in American politics has to be good for the country. So Damon, some of the people who were shedding tears on Twitter were actually not even extreme right-wingers, but some extreme, well, weird people who have had a forum on Tucker's show, including Glenn Greenwald and some others. So um, it was a loss for everyone who is inclined toward conspiracy models and extremism and provocation, irresponsibility. It definitely was, uh, there was a little bit of schadenfreude going on in my psyche. Oh, me too. Glenn Greenwald <laughs> is up there on Twitter like, oh, poor open discourse has a casualty today. Yeah. In other words, all your bookings uh, are, are now in a pinch. <laughs> I really liked <laughs> Ross Douthat's column in the Times about Carlson. I didn't agree with all of it, and I do wish Ross could muster a little bit more criticism about these things, but he is often insightful. And he made a point, and now here, this is kind of ridiculous. I, I liked his point because it he made a point I have made. See, there you go. That's why I liked it. Um, no, but he made a point that I have made in something I wrote in a post almost a year ago about Glenn Greenwald, and he made the point about Carlson. <laughs> and kind of why they sort of are now fast friends. And it has to do with this issue of kind of selective skepticism, that what made Tucker a thing was his complete and utter unwillingness to grant any trust whatsoever to anybody from the government or anyone attached to any center-left or center-right institution. So anyone who held the positions of the Republican Party, say, in the middle of the George W. Bush administration on foreign policy, on domestic policy, on taxation, on all kinds of issues, would just receive a kind of scowl and a smirk and be angrily and totally dismissed. Whereas the people who raise objections to all of those things are treated with complete credulity. So you have this bizarre situation where, you know, Tucker would just raise skeptical objection after skeptical objection to 
helping Ukraine in its fight with Russia. And, you know, as if nobody on that side of the argument was worth giving any credence whatsoever. And then when it came to things that, say, Vladimir Putin would say to defend his own campaign against Ukraine, he would just sort of defer to that. Like, oh, okay, yeah, wow, that's a good point, Vladimir. And that's exactly, of course, what Glenn Greenwald does, because he's kind of stuck back in 2005 despises the Bush administration and everyone who defended the Iraq war. And so therefore, anyone remotely connected to those positions or institutions that defended those policies deserves to be not just discredited, but kind of mocked, ridiculed, and attacked. And that really is kind of the key to this sort of horseshoe theory of politics, where anyone remotely in the center gets attacked, and then anyone on the fringes gets elevated and platformed. But I will be watching closely to see what Tucker does next. He does take with him, I think, a large audience of fans, at least several million of them. And depending on what he chooses to do, he could continue to have a a lamentably strong influence on what's going on in our politics. I'm a little skeptical about the whole running for president thing. You know, the guy recorded all of his shows from his home up in very rural Maine. He almost never came to Washington. And so if he thought that he could run a presidential campaign from his house in the woods, I think he maybe would do it. But I can't imagine the guy barnstorming the country, giving speeches. Uh, It doesn't seem like his style. He's a homebody and he's rich, and I don't think he wants to work that hard. Exceedingly rich, which he was before he became a Fox star, but never mind. I'm going to come to Jill later about what the future may hold for him and speculation along those lines. But first, Linda, I want to come to you on just outlining a little bit further the nature of Carlson's influence. So there are lies and there are lies. There's a lot of lying that goes on in public life. There's stretching of the truth and so on. But the kind of lies that Carlson trafficked in were the kind of lies, I was saying this on the podcast that I do with Charlie Sykes, which is available for Bulwark Plus listeners only, but they're the kind of lies that make you want to pick up a gun and shoot your fellow citizens. And those are the kinds of things that he specialized in. The They are coming for you. They, uh, you know, meaning immigrants, dark-skinned people, the government itself, this series called Patriot Purge, which didn't run on Fox News, it ran on the Fox Nation, their streaming platform, suggesting that January 6th was a false flag operation. Later, when he got the surveillance tapes of January 6th, he suggested that these were not insurrectionists, these were meek tourists, he said. You know, and he has called Zelensky a Ukrainian pimp. He has elevated and laundered this a great replacement theory. You know, these are the kinds of lies that are truly subversive of civil peace, in my judgment. That's right. Absolutely. So, Mona, two points I want to make on this. I happen to have been in Arizona all week, both before the Tucker Carlson firing and after. And the first part of my week in Tucson was spent with my sister and my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law, who is a really decent man. He's very smart. He's an engineer. And he's not all that conservative, but he watched Tucker Carlson every night. And it changed him, I think. It certainly, it seeped into his brain. I mean, this is the way propaganda works. You expose people to these ideas and you do it over and over and over again. And pretty soon it becomes part of their DNA. So I spent my first day or two arguing with my brother-in-law, trying to sort of re-educate him about the facts on what was happening in Ukraine, you know, what is happening at the border. And it was very convenient because we were right near the border and I actually went to a border place where they take in the people who are coming in and claiming asylum. And so I was able to give him firsthand information, first of all, about who was coming and uh, secondly, about the numbers, etc. But what was so disheartening about this is that for every one 
who is like my brother-in-law, good, decent people, not even all that conservative, but who get brainwashed by a Tucker Carlson. This has an effect on our entire society. So that's the first point I want to make. The second point, though, has to do with his firing. He was not fired for any of that. And to remind people in the corporate world, corporate world cares about the bottom line. And when you got folks up there who are costing you almost a billion dollars in a lawsuit, and it was very clear that Tucker Carlson's email traffic was a major factor in this decision. And it wasn't just the hypocrisy, the way in which he made fun of his postmenopausal fans, women, uh, whether they would like his look or not. It was calling executives, guests, and I guess fellow employees at Fox the C-word. And this was much of those emails, which were in the hands of the lawyers representing Fox, but did not get to the board of directors and may not even have gotten to the Murdochs, were not known. And we only sort of are having hints of what's in them. We haven't actually seen them yet. Well, wait, you mean they weren't in the hands of the Murdochs until recently? Until a few days before the trial was to begin. And it was apparently the existence of some of those emails that pushed the Murdochs to say, okay, we better settle this. This is not good. But it also points to the fact that nowhere in America, there's no job that you can have in America. I don't care if it's, you know, bussing tables at a restaurant to being the CEO of a major corporation. When you call your fellow workers, but especially your bosses, the C word, you're going to get fired. And that's the lesson he had to learn. He thought he was bigger than Fox News. And it turns out he's not. They have the money. They write the checks. And so he's gone. But I think it's an important point to make that it wasn't all the conspiracy theories. It wasn't the virulently racist great replacement theory that got Tucker fired. It was his insubordination and his thinking that he was actually more important than the firm for which he worked. So glad you made that point, Linda. And you're right. I mean, he should have, of course, been fired for all those other outrages in a better world. Nevertheless, I have to say, it does make me feel a little bit good that he was punished for that kind of vile personal behavior because, and I think Damon, maybe you recommended a succession last week when you were here with Sonny Bunch. But anyway, it's really good, except it is so vulgar, so vile. Every other word is the F word or the S word. And I like to think that that's actually a terrible exaggeration that people don't really speak that way, certainly not in most instances, and for them to portray this as a normal way of doing business in boardrooms and so on. Now, I know it's just one show, but I think that sort of thing is out of bounds. And maybe it seems trivial to people, but you know, it's good that somebody drew a line on something. It is the left's fantasy about what goes on in boardrooms. I haven't been in very many boardrooms myself, so what do I know? But anyway, it just strikes me as... uh, It's what you said. He felt that he was untouchable. He felt, what are they going to do to me? I mean, I'm their biggest moneymaker. I can do whatever I want. And pride goeth before destruction and haughty spirit before a fall, however that line goes. Jill Lawrence, you are concerned. You know, there has been talk over the years. Well, Tucker is such a huge figure on the right. Some people would have said up until a few minutes ago, that he was the leading intellectual force on the right. And that if he wanted to run for president, might have a really good shot. So what is your sense of that? Well, the one thing that makes me slightly encouraged that it won't happen is that I I don't think the end is in sight for Tucker Carlson being in the news in negative ways. There's so much more coming down the pike for Fox. And so the lawsuit, uh, the Smartmatic lawsuit, is going to be a lot of the same 
information. And I guess we can always hope that that goes to trial. I was very disappointed that this one didn't, the Dominion one. But even in lawsuits that aren't about him and things that aren't about him, you hear, this goes to Linda's point, the shooting of that 16-year-old in Kansas City, one of the grandchildren of the person who allegedly shot him said that he had been radicalized by Fox and he had been essentially taught to think that if a black person knocked on your door, nothing good could come of it and he should kill him. And he almost did. The thing that's so interesting to me is that there are so many reasons that Tucker Carlson could have been fired. And someone has on Media Matters has done a piece with 11 good reasons. And a lot of them are ones that we've all thought about, including the misogyny, which was just so awful. But it's also interesting to me that Rupert Murdoch essentially fired his fiance, his latest fiance, after she said that Tucker was a messenger from God. And as one of you, Mona or Linda, pointed out, he acted too much like God that he forgot who was boss. Uh, but the firing is a Rorschach test. I mean, you know, was it money? Was he acting too much like God? Was it the sexism and misogyny? Was it the lies and deception and double talk? Did he become simply too expensive? Or did someone, maybe Rupert Murdoch, maybe Lachlan Murdoch, decide that they didn't want their legacy to be killing democracy or damaging democracy in the United States. And there's also the siblings angle, which I've read about before this, but it was included in all these many reasons that the two siblings who will help run it after Rupert is gone are not like Lachlan, and he needs them to run it. Without them, he doesn't have a board majority. So maybe he was trying to let them have some input and they decided Tucker had to go. Uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation about this. And I, I ought to mention here that I'm one of the only people in America who doesn't watch Succession. It was um, one of my exhibit A's, B's and C's in a piece I wrote a while back about COVID escapism and how I just could not watch shows about nasty people. And, and so Fair. That, you know, I, I sensed it was going to be exactly like described, you know, all the <laughs> nastiness and obscenity and meanness. So anyway, I, I don't watch it. In other words, one uh, Murdoch family is enough. I don't need a fictional one. <laughs> right. I totally understandable. Yeah. But I guess my point is, you know, it's not like Tucker Carlson is going to disappear in terms of the problems with him for Fox News. So he may need to wait a while. I think he's made himself unemployable anywhere else. Uh, he's not only expensive in terms of lawsuits, but he's left advertising on the table. People don't want to be associated with him. So, you know, maybe he'll start his own whatever, but I hope it's not for a while. And I hope maybe the country gets a little bit past this. Yeah, we can reflect on the fate of Bill O'Reilly, who had that slot before Tucker and also had ratings through the roof. When he was let go, he kind of dropped from sight. My attention was drawn to him because somebody pointed out that in a newsletter that he publishes or whatever it is he's running now, he had attacked me recently, but he got the quote completely wrong, attributed something to me I hadn't said, but never mind. The fact is that once you lose that platform, it's not so easy to keep your position in the national conversation. So we'll see, but Tucker may have some lonely times ahead. I don't know. Uh, all right, let us now turn to what's happening with Ron DeSantis. He has not had the greatest week because the largest employer in the state, namely Disney, has had enough of his bullying and they are suing him. So Damon Linker, it's a little bit of a complicated lawsuit, but some of it is not that complicated, not hard to understand. They're saying, look, we are a corporation. Corporations have a right to free speech, just like individuals. We expressed our disagreement with your bill about parental rights and education, and you are retaliating against us for exercising our constitutional rights. Yeah, I mean, as the non-lawyer I am, I think it looks like a very strong lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot speak as an expert about how likely it is to succeed, but it is a, a real blast back at DeSantis and his whole gambit of trying to prove his uh, woke warrior veracity and bona fides by taking on Disney just over and over again, going after them and actually setting up what does look like to be a kind of quasi-mobster attack 
attack on the company using government power. He'd all but threatened to open a toxic waste dump across the street from Disney World <laughs> right? in Orlando. Right. And, and you know, oh, that's a, a, a nice uh, vacation spot you got there. Sure would be a shame if something were to happen to it. He's talking like the Godfather. And, you know, he thinks that this is going to appeal to the Republican base. And we don't know yet if it really will. But as a kind of a strong arm form of politics, it truly is an appalling display. And it will be very satisfying, at least for me and those who think like me, to actually see this kind of fought out in a court of law, to see if there is any ground in the law to actually use the state to penalize a private business for disagreeing with the person who's in charge of the governor's mansion, it rubs me very deeply the wrong way. And it would be great if he got slapped down for this as a lesson to the populist right. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when conservatives used to point to some of FDR's rhetoric in 1936, 1937, around his first re-election campaign that was very hostile toward big business and banks and really deployed a kind of left-wing populism against them. And conservatives used to rail against this. It's so, so dictatorial. But, you know, note that that was mostly just rhetoric, whereas now, I mean, DeSantis appears to be on the lookout for ways that he can use regulatory power and other things to actually penalize the company, taking away the autonomy of the company to run the park, which it has had from the beginning. Now, you might say maybe that should never have been granted to Disney. Well, okay, we can have that kind of historical argument, but it's very different than to propose to take it away for the purposes of punishing them for taking a political stance that the governor disagrees with. It looks like kind of banana republic stuff, and I'll be eager to see if DeSantis gets hurt by this. Linda, one of the things DeSantis said is that they were looking into increasing regulation on Disney's rides, though they weren't going to do the same for the other theme parks in Florida. And then the worst part was when he said that they were considering putting a state prison next to Disney World. You know, this, as Damon says, is kind of bully boy tactic. It is completely unrecognizable as conservative. Absolutely. <laughs> Only thing he didn't say was that the prison was going to be aimed at pedophiles. He could have added that. Oh, yeah, there you go. Now, you know, this is beyond anything that any of us who consider ourselves conservative could imagine. It's anti-business, pro-regulation. It's pro-government interference in the free market. Um, look, one can debate whether or not Disney has had a very privileged position in the state of Florida. You know, it has this special zone where it controls essentially government functions within that zone. It has its own police department, has its own fire department, I think sanitation, other kinds of services that are often provided for by counties are provided for by Disney. But, you know, when they looked into abolishing that special tax status, they found that it was going to be a huge, huge burden on the surrounding counties because suddenly they were going to have to pay for police, fire, et cetera. It was going to be about a billion dollars. That was probably going to raise taxes for everybody. And look, cities do this all the time. They give special tax breaks to entities which bring in money in other ways that help boost sales taxes, et cetera, that provide you know, benefits uh, to the entire population. This have, these kinds of debates take place over things like arenas and stadiums, et cetera. But what he is doing is trying to use the power of the state to punish people who disagree with him. Now, you know, I don't think that first supposed don't say gay bill, which basically said you can't talk about gender identification or sexual orientation with children kindergarten through third grade. I think most people would say, well, you know, why are you talking about those things anyway with those children? Whether it was worth putting in legislation, whether there were not other ways you could handle it, we can debate that. But the fact that Disney objected to that 
can't be used as the excuse to upend the taxing function and the public services function of the states and counties in Florida. And that's why Disney is suing. And whether or not they will, you know, have a good case to make or not, I will tell you, Disney has probably got better lawyers on their side than the state of Florida is going to be able to have on theirs. I think that's a safe assumption. Yeah, Bill Galston, there is really a whiff of authoritarianism here when you punish people for disagreeing with you and use the power of the state to do it. And by the way, we should just say for the members of the Republican Party who still think of themselves as being pro-business, this is the state's largest employer. And it paid and collected a total of $1.2 billion in state and local taxes just in 2022. This was the week, I think, that Ron DeSantis jumped the shark, and it is going to cost him because a lot of business-oriented Republicans who thought of him as a sane alternative to Trump, who could appeal to the Trumpian base better than the other alternatives, but, uh, but without capitulating to it are really beginning to rethink their original assessment of DeSantis. And as a result, you have a lot of big money people who appeared to be committed to him early on, some of whom wrote large checks, who are now pulling back. I think this speaks to a larger tension now within the Republican Party. Up to now, leading Republicans led by Trump have been able to pivot towards populism without paying a huge cost among traditional business-oriented conservatives. But the structural tension is there. It has been there for a while. And now I believe DeSantis's latest actions are crystallizing that tension and making a lot of more traditional Republicans understand that Talking about synthesizing these two tendencies is too easy, and in fact, that they may have to try to draw a line. I think the first step in that line drawing may be retrenching on financial support for Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign. So I think he has some thinking to do. Yeah, and that leaves us with the god-awful prospect that there will be no effective alternative to Trump in the Republican primary, but we will get to that another time. I want to turn, Jill, to the other story this week, uh, just a few words, because E. Jean Carroll testified this week at her rape trial. I mean, it's a complicated case, but in any case, so Trump is not criminally liable, but could be civilly I found her testimony, I wasn't expecting anything, but when I read it, I was very moved because this poor woman has really suffered and it is a horrible assault based on her description. What do you make of it? Will people notice? I don't know. Well, I think they will notice because as you say, her testimony was very specific and very compelling. And she also remembers the advice she got from her, I think her sister and someone else, and it was directly conflicting. One of them, you know, you've got to go to the police. The other one, no, he'll wreck you, he'll ruin you. And, you know, so she had a stalemate in terms of the people she trusted, and she didn't go to the police until, I think, 2019. And I think, you know, the people who will be called to testify to support her specific experience, and also people who have had similar experiences with Donald Trump, they're going to be also very dramatic and effective. And so, you know, I'm not saying that this is any kind of turning point. And it's true that what seemed like the strongest alternative to Trump is fading in DeSantis. But I do think that this is going to be not just a really strong headline case that once again brings Trump's moral failings to the fore, but he also in his behavior could be bringing more legal action upon himself or trying to wreck her reputation all over again and influence the jury and the public. So, you know, there's just all kinds of things going on. And if I could just say a couple of things about DeSantis. Oh, yes, please. One of the previews of what he's doing to Disney came with the vaccine ban, the ban on vaccine mandates. And he said he was trying to stop government overreach by making it impossible for businesses and any government entity to uh, mandate 
that their customers and people coming in for their services had to have COVID vaccines. And he was sued by cruise companies because they were the incubators of the pandemic. I mean, we can't forget that. And why would it make business sense to not require vaccines if people thought they might get COVID and die on a cruise, which there were people quarantined off the coast of California for a long time when this all first started. And Trump didn't want to let them birth because he was afraid his numbers would go up. That is the numbers of cases. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, everything was me, me, me. And But I just, you know, the irony of the book he published, The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival, I think that can be used against him. Yeah. I mean, no one wants what's going on in Florida. I mean, there's book bans. He's changing a college into a conservative, you know, ideological plantation for himself. Just this week, the legislature made it possible for him to run for president without giving up the governorship. This month, they've extended the Don't Say Gay bill to grade 12. So, you know, they just do whatever he wants. Well, then there's the abortion bans. There's the big footing of school board races. It goes on and on. I've actually started trying to collect collections of things happening in Florida, because when I start trying to describe it, I lose all hope of ever remembering everything that's happened there. Those are excellent points. And from the very beginning of his governorship, he has shown a willingness to bully businesses and use state power in uh, inappropriate ways, including, as you mentioned about, you know, telling private businesses whether they can require masks or vaccines. I do think, though, we should say one of his strengths, and can't be denied, was that they kept schools open in Florida, which many other places did not. And that turns out to have been the right move. So we have to acknowledge that. We do, but it's easier when the climate is like Florida's. True. That's absolutely right. All right. Well, we will keep an eye on all of this. And uh, we didn't even mention the bobblehead thing from Japan, <laughs> which has gotten a lot of attention online that, you know, when he said, oh, I'm not even running, he looked very silly. But anyway. Okay. Well, let us now turn to our highlight or low light of the week. Both Bill and Linda had to scoot out early. And so we are going to start with Jill Lawrence. I had two highlights to decide from, which was kind of amazing given all that's gone on this week. And the one I settled on was the news that Senator Bernie Sanders, the chairman of the Senate Health Committee, and Bill Cassidy, the senior Republican, announced a deal, a bipartisan deal, on getting lower drug prices. And this is something that a lot of people were involved in, at least five Democrats and Republicans beside them, and it's they're having a big meeting on it on Tuesday. It's the real deal, both parties cooperating and finding common ground on uh, lowering prices by making generics more available and uh, increasing oversight on the middle managers, the middlemen that can operate in secret and are suspected of driving up prices, just keep better tabs on them. And and so, you know, it's good news. The Art of the Political Deal, which is actually the name of a little book I wrote, is not dead, even in the middle of polarization and flawed candidates, particularly on the Republican side. Excellent. What's your second one? Well, the second one was the president of South Korea singing American Pie last night at the state dinner, <laughs> <laughs> which was, um, I think Biden knew it was going to happen, but he was still shocked that the guy could actually sing. And the audience obviously was stunned that this happened. And the video clips are terrific. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll have to put that in the show notes. Okay. Thank you, Jill. Damon Linker. Well, I don't know whether to call this a highlight or a low light, but it's definitely something noteworthy. How important it turns out to be, we will see. But an interesting fact this week is that, once again, Biden announced that he is, in fact, running for re-election. And there have been two polls this week that show Robert Kennedy Jr. getting around 20% of the vote and Marianne Williamson getting just under 10% of the vote in Democratic presidential primary polls. Now, it's early. They could both sink, and this could become an asterisk to a footnote in the history books. 
But I would say the Kennedy number is a little surprising to me. I mean, of course, the Kennedy name uh, helps him a lot, but he's running a very strange kind of nascent campaign that seems to be really uh, leading with vaccine skepticism from the left. And Biden is, of course, you know, 40 to 50 points up on the two of them. But you put them together and... One is a Fox poll, one is an Emerson poll. So these are legitimate polls. And the fact that uh, roughly 30% of the Democratic electorate is opting for somebody else is something worth at least keeping an eye on, given the fact that one of the most damaging insurgency polls against an incumbent president uh, in our lifetimes was, of course, Pat Buchanan's campaign against George H.W. Bush in 1992, where he ended up winning 23% of the vote. And a lot of analysts think that this foretold Bush's sort of lackluster performance that year in the general election and his loss to Bill Clinton. So, you know, the fact that Kennedy is around 20, I would say that's about double what I thought his ceiling might be. You know, again, something to keep an eye on uh, as we watch this all unfold over, you know, the next 18 months or so. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little skeptical of those numbers, Damon. Once people realize who Robert F. Kennedy Jr. really is, I think those numbers will drop like a stone. A lot of me thinks that, but, you know, I've also lived through the last seven years of American politics, so I no longer make such strong predictions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. I would like to call out the Montana state legislature dominated by Republicans that this week decided to punish one of their own, a lawmaker who's trans, Zoe Zephyr. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Look, I don't know what she did to disrupt the proceedings, you know, when they were debating a bill to, I think, outlaw puberty blockers and cross-hormone and other treatments for minors in the state of Montana. She may have been rude. She may have led the protesters in the gallery in chants or whatever. But the idea that the majority would, as a consequence, punish her by saying she cannot appear on the floor again is just another episode of Republicans uh, overstepping. Now, you know, people who listen to this podcast may know that I have a lot of problems with the way we are treating gender dysphoria in children. I think we've gone way too far and need to pull back as the Europeans have and re-examine whether we're carefully evaluating each case. That much having been said, this is just not the way you react. You don't try to silence people who disagree with you. And that's what the Republicans in Montana are doing. Shame on them. And then on a better note, I just want to recommend a podcast series that is available from The Economist called Next Year in Moscow. It is sort of a look at what has happened to bring us to the point where Russia invaded Ukraine, namely what happened to Russia under Putin. Lots of really agonized voices of people who had thought perhaps their country was headed for something better and are now either in exile or in hiding, really, and highly recommended. As we say goodbye this week, I want to just mention the passing of Harry Belafonte, a major figure in American music and also activism. Uh, In his early life, he was a huge supporter of the civil rights movement for which I honor him. His later forays were a little less desirable. In fact, he became very close to Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. So those things are not to his credit, but he was a major figure and deserves to be remembered for the good things, specifically his civil rights work. The music we go out with will be his. With that, I want to thank our guest, Jill Lawrence. I want to thank our regulars and also our sound engineer this week, Jonathan Siri, and of course, our producer, Katie Cooper. Recommend that everybody go to The Bulwark and become a member of Bulwark Plus, where you can get many more fantastic options. Thank you, and we will return next week as every week.
Heidi Deadly, Black Tarantula. Daylight 